You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the honor and the pleasure of sitting down with one of my dearest friends, Miss Kim Hasserud. Kim is a nationally recognized mixologist and a beverage consultant. And she just opened in her hometown in Arizona, the Garden Bar. Now she works with hundreds of liquor brands, major international restaurants and hotels, creating beautiful, delicious, successful cocktail and bar programs. She's also the author of the best-selling 101 cocktail series. And currently she is the president of the United States Bartenders Guild. Now Kim shared with us her love of her family of our industry, how she got started, and oh my gosh, just so much more. So sit back, relax, grab yourself your favorite El Tesoro cocktail, and enjoy the show. Kim, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are really excited to have you on the show today. I'm super excited to be here, Bridget and Julie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you share with us, where did you get your beginnings in the beverage industry? You know, I came into this industry like a lot of other people did, um, especially in our generation, Bridget, where we kind of did it as a way to get ourselves through school. You know, I started, um, I pretty much worked in hospitality since graduating high school. You know, I worked at a sandwich shop and uh, I was in Kansas City and worked at like, you know, a Bennigan's and a Daryl's and an, I think an Olive Garden was actually my my first server job. But, I, you know, I made I made pretty good money and, and I moved to New York initially to work in the entertainment industry, but was always a bartender to, to supplement my income. And I really fell in love with it. I loved everything about hospitality. I loved serving people. I loved making people happy. And, you know, I started to kind of get a, a little geeky behind the bar. And again, this is before my mixology really took off, but it was in the very beginning stages. And I, you know, the, the chef would let me go raid the walk-in and kind of grab whatever I wanted and uh, just start to experiment and play around with. And so people would come in and say, hey, make me, you know, make me a, a summer cloud on a New York day. And so I'd be inspired by that and like, you know, create some fun things. But at around the same time was when uh, Dale DeGroff, you know, was getting a lot of uh, notoriety and popularity. And I met them. And I also met Tony Abiganum, who were really inspirational in saying that, hey, this is a career choice. You could really, you know, do something with this. And that's kind of when I started to, to pivot. And, you know, with my experience in the entertainment industry at the time, that's around when I started Liquid Architecture because I would go to a lot of um, these movie premieres or the Sundance Film Festival. And I was always really kind of blown away at, you know, you would go to these events and they would spend so much money at this premiere or this party. You know, the, the entertainment was there, the lighting, the decor, the food, but the drinks were always an afterthought. You know, they never really matched the greatness of the event. And I was always thinking, God, if you just put a little creativity into the drinks and made them a much higher quality, you could enhance someone's experience tenfold. Because if you looked around the room, every single person had some kind of drink in their hand. So that was really kind of the beginnings, uh, workings of what liquid architecture would be. And so initially I started doing events, um, movie premieres, and I would hire an art director to come out and pop out the bar um, I moved to Los Angeles and I did that. I mean, Maxim Magazine was actually one of my first big clients. And so I traveled the country with them and did a lot of their big parties. But throughout all of all of that kind of time period, I always approached cocktails from a very like fresh perspective. And you wanted, you know, from a culinary point of view and wanted to 
you know, always use fresh ingredients. And that kind of evolved over time. And I got on the radar of some, some liquor brands and started working with them directly and then started working with some national accounts directly. And I would say now my consultancy is kind of has, you know, over the past 10, 15 years has evolved into doing a lot of things for national accounts, everything from uh, bartender training to opening bars to uh, menu development, drink development, and so forth. You know, and I've written some, some cocktail books too, along the way too. So that's been quite the journey with, with liquid architecture and, and, and my career. But, you know, I'm also really excited in this kind of next, you know, phase. And I think, you know, one thing that I know we, we've talked about a lot, Bridget, is, you know, the, the effect that the pandemic has had on our industry and, you know, how our industry, how this is going to be impacted. Because I definitely think there's going to be a long tail result in how the pandemic is going to shape hospitality in the many, many, many years to come for the better. Yeah. And so now I'm, I'm, you know, working on this, this new initiative called the Cocktail Collaborative, which we are right now in the phase of like writing out our job descriptions and hiring, but uh, it is going to be one part craft cocktail bar and one part hospitality workspace. So we'll have a lot of educational opportunities, a lot of like demos and tastings for both bartenders and enthusiasts, people, uh, brand, everyone from brand ambassadors to uh, bartenders can book the space, whether it's to do presentations or work on, um, you know, competitions for prep or, you know, maybe their own cocktail menus at their own bars. But, you know, we... We're really looking at this as an opportunity to provide like some leadership and and mentorship and just new ways of looking at at hospitality that can be professionalized. So that's kind of my bigger grand vision of of the space, um, which I'm I'm super excited about it, and I hope it works. That is such a brilliant concept, and I know that we talked about it, you know, at the the mm-hmm. recent conference that we were all together, and it's. You know, it's almost surprising that it hasn't already existed. I know that they have like art collectives, right? Where like everybody yeah. goes in and and each art, they had one of those in South Beach um, called the Art Center. And of course they've closed, but they were there forever. And it was mm. so fantastic to see like artists from all over the world rent their little space within a broader shared space. And, you know, they were able to show off their work and have a gallery and So I think the fact that you're very incredible space um, for the beverage industry is is just incredible. Mm -hmm. What what kind of led you to wanting to do that? You know, Julie, that's something that I have kind of thought about. So Kevin, my husband and I, we we bought this 1914 bungalow about five years ago. It's in the South Roosevelt district. And the initial idea was, you know what, I need kind of a, a brick and mortar space as an office. So when I have clients coming into town to do drink development, I have a a, a space that I can take them. That is a neutral space. And what happened was, as, you know, I work with local bartenders, there was a need for, hey, you have all of these tools in there that I need. Can I come in and use the space for drink development? Sure. Or can I come in and, and prep for a competition and do some drink development? Sure. You know, I had a lot of a product there and I had a lot of relationships with, you know, smallware companies, glassware companies, uh, puree and syrup companies. So I had all of that there that I wasn't going to be using, not nearly enough as it should be used. And it just kind of made, you know, why don't we kind of open up this space and see how it goes? So we started, it kind of became this little cool space that bartenders knew about and wanted to come and use it. And so that kind of triggered this idea to, you know what, let's, let's help actually create some structure around it and make it um, this collective collaborative space that, uh, you know, can be used for everything from education to a workspace that nothing like that has really existed before. You know, there's these ghost kitchens, but there hasn't really been a workable cost-effective place for, for bartenders and other beverage hospitality people to, to have. You know, uh, there was one space in London called Crucible, which is kind of similar. And when I saw that, I'm like, that it can be done. If they can do it in London, we can definitely do it here. 
So it's, uh, yeah, so it's kind of just this hybrid of being a workspace and also an educational space. But it's never been done before here, but I'm hoping that it'll work. And so far, people are, you know, really supportive. So knock on wood. Well, it sounds like you already have proof of concept. It's like you've already kind of been doing it. That's right. We haven't done it formally and like, but, you know, now it kind of requires, okay, we need, you know, to hire a person to kind of, uh, to manage the space, you know, we need to put, you know, formal like memberships in place and making it kind of scalable depending on what your role is. So it's really kind of critically thinking through all of those kind of nuance and details, but we've gotten like a lot of great feedback and a lot of, you know, some support from partners. So, yeah. So I think the proof of concept was there and now we just gotta, we just gotta make it happen. I love that. I love that you're just going for it. Where can our listeners find you, Kim? Um, we do have a website called the cocktail collaborative.com. They can find us there and they can actually, uh, book the space on there. Oh, you know what we are. Yeah. We're in the middle of redoing it. Um, but it will be the cocktailcollaborative.com. Okay, great. So listeners make sure to log on and, you know, find Kim and check out her new space. No doubt. You know, um, would love to know a bit more about you and your involvement with the United States Bartenders Guild, Kim, you know, where did that all begin and where you are today and what would you like to see in the future for the USBG? Gosh, man, that's, that's such a, a, a big question. You know, you know, Bridget, you and I, I think joined the USBG probably at around the same time. It was kind of in the like 2009 years, kind of the, um, you know, I joined in when I lived in Los Angeles and I was part of that whole, um, team and we had a really good, good council. And I think that was kind of the beginning of the big boom, like the big, I say growth of the USBG. And we really expanded to a lot of communities, which was really excited really exciting at the time. You know, I spent a couple of years in Los Angeles. I moved to Phoenix where I got involved with the community here. And shortly thereafter became uh, the president here in Phoenix for a couple of terms, moved up to a role like a regional vice president. um, And then from there moved on to the board role. But it's been really interesting and fascinating to kind of be a part of that whole process and to see the USBG really evolve over the past 10 plus years. I mean, we're, we're next year going to be celebrating like the 75th anniversary of the USBG. But um, I would just say in the past 15 years is when we've just seen like this explosive growth and change within the USBG. But um, within that 15 years, we've, we have definitely encountered a lot, of, um, a lot of growth and a lot more organization behind it, which we really needed. And, you know, it almost kind of grew so fast and so quickly that we couldn't even keep up. So when we started changing, you know, our leadership models, it was almost like right when we implemented it, it was almost even outdated because the growth was so big that we couldn't possibly keep up with the amount of organization needed. And so, you know, now, and that, and even like when, when I was the regional vice president, even that was outdated, you know, there was just so much um, work involved, but it's, we've been through, you know, like three different governmental uh, changes throughout the years. And I think now we're, we're at a place which feels really good. And we have, um, you know, we have, Everything that we've done on the national level, we've also done on a community level and that we've created a board and this board appoints officers and officers that have, you know, the time and dedication to commit to um, local communities and, and, and bigger, bigger initiatives. So that's been really exciting. But, you know, I'd love to have a conversation about um, and I'd love to hear your guys take on this, too, uh, just about leadership. Because I think, you know, one thing that, that I've witnessed over the past 10 years is kind of this evolution of like the, uh, we'll say the celebrity bartender. And I think, you know, this also came at a time when we were really trying to and continue to professionalize the role of the bartender. 
And, you know, for so long when I did bartender training, I always said, hey, you know, we're trying to get back to we're moving forward by taking a step backwards. You know, we're trying to get back to the time when bartenders were professional. You know, if you go back to like the golden age of the cocktails, it was a three-year apprenticeship just to get behind the bar. And, you know, now we're kind of, there are bars that, you know, it does take that long to get behind the bar. But I think one mistake that we all as a community have made is being a really good bartender and making a really good drink and even getting notoriety of that doesn't necessarily make you a good leader. And what I mean by that is sometimes we, we've put so much value on how crafty, you know, a bartender can be, or, you know, maybe how much press they've gotten. And they've equated those two things with a really good bartender makes is, is a, is equitable to like a really good leader in our community. And while they may be a really good leader on the craft side, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good leader of people, you know, that they know how to be, you know, inclusive or that they know how to lead a team or can be diplomatic. And I think that's something that we've really have seen a lot of fallback from a lot of, um, pushback from and that, you know, we, we, there have been leaders that have been put in place in communities that uh, maybe weren't, they can make a great cocktail, but they weren't really good at managing and pulling together a community. So I think our definitions of leadership have also evolved over the past 10 years as well. But I'd love to kind of hear your, you know, your, your opinions on that too. I'll jump in. And Kim, I just love that you went there. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and I feel that as leaders, we have mm-hmm. to challenge the status quo, right? And we have to, people need to be challenged. And you are a hundred percent right. I mean, I grew up in, in the restaurant industry, you know, family owned restaurant, like we just had a beer and wine license. And mm. then as I progressed in the restaurant industry and like went and worked for a fine dining restaurant as like starting off as a, a hostess or a busser and then mm-hmm. a waiter and you see the bartender and they are like the shit, you know, I mean, they yeah. run the place. I mean, I would be intimidated to go talk to the bartender. They were like, the highest ranking person with the mm-hmm. best job. And I've seen great bartenders that are exactly what you're saying. They're the leader. They make sure everything's in order. They're just kind of the, that epitome of leadership. And then, you know, and I've also been in situations where I've seen a different representation of the bartender, you know, like mm-hmm. they don't talk to you. They're in their own world. They do their thing. They're in their out, you know, mm-hmm. and, And then obviously like in my role now and and seeing this part of the world and, and especially working with Bridget and getting to meet just her wonderful network of friends like you and, and, and everybody else and Dale DeGraff, like, I feel like I'm so spoiled, you know, and then you see like true leadership and, um, and people like all of you that have, you know, taken that role as bartender, taken it to the next level, educated so passionate about it, mentored, you know, took, took on so many mentees, saw people and helped them progress in their career, whether it's their own business or, I mean, there's just so many stories, you know? So I, I think that you're as, you know, the leader of the mm-hmm. USBG now and, and making this a, a core topic is, is so instrumental because it, there's almost this shift, right? Like, okay, well, mm-hmm. who's that next generation of leaders? Like, what's happening there? How has COVID impacted them, right? Mm. Like now we've got the great resignation. So like, how is this impacting Mm. bartenders and and the ones that are staying? Like, can they get, do they have the will to take on that that leadership promise? Like it's it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And, and, you know, not, not to kind of keep, keep harping on that, but I think one thing that, that we all agree on is that, you know, this, this pandemic has really put a spotlight on a lot of the inequities in our industry, as well as a lot of the bad behavior that went unchecked. And, you know, sometimes you would have these bartender names, I, I guess, I guess leaders in like the craft community 
that maybe went unchecked with bad behavior, but they made a great drink and they got a lot of notoriety. So it was kind of, you know, not, it was kind of ignored. And I think that's no longer acceptable and it hasn't been acceptable for some time, but especially during, you know, the, the whole Me Too movement and now with the pandemic that, you know, that is continuing to evolve. You know, as much as I hate to say it, this pandemic has been so painful for so many people. You know, we've, you know, we've lost some loved ones. We have, um, you know, lost jobs and have, you know, been through some financial times. But I think hospitality has always triumphed, you know, no matter what. And it's usually been kind of recession proof, but not in this case. And I think, you know, in the years to come that we will come out of this so much bigger and better than ever before. I still think, you know, we have, we still have a, a few more years of, of pain and struggle to get through it, but, you know, in order to be bigger and better, sometimes you got to go through that. And I think, um, the, you know, the cream will rise to the top, so to speak. I agree yeah. with you hundred percent. And I just want to take it back just a minute because, you know, you're talking about, I think leaders versus influencers. I think that there is a huge difference of having yeah. the bartender maybe on Instagram that has the 10,000s of followers that can, mm-hmm. you know, develop maybe a three second, I don't even know, cause I'm not on TikTok, but you know, mm-hmm. just a very short video and they get so many fans and that's what it is. It's fans. Um, mm. that, that doesn't make someone a leader. It doesn't show their mm-hmm. empathy. It doesn't show their skill set beyond making something flashy and attractive that people think are cool. So I I hundred percent think that that yes, we need to take a step back and really dig deep into those skill sets that are needed mm. to lead a team. That's mm. not the same thing as producing something that is beneficial to yourself, right? Because being a volunteer, and I, you know, I I was a USBG president in Illinois for for a couple terms, and I would always say to my successor, or or even people who would run for officer positions, like, look, if you're in this for yourself, please don't run because it's Mm -hmm. hard and it's work. You need to be in this for the best intentions of others. Mm Two hundred percent agree, and I think that is actually one of the reasons why we changed our leadership model into having a board and a board that appoints councilmen versus being voted upon voted upon the membership at large because it would end up being a popularity contest in which just because you're popular doesn't mean you're a good leader and i think there's that but i completely concur with you i think the new uh, if i had to put in one word what are future leaders, the one quality that they need to have more than being a skilled bartender is empathy. You I, know, gonna, I think that's yep. going to be, yeah. A thousand um, percent. I mean, a good leader has the, has empathy and then lets their group shine. I mean, that's just, that's yeah. the bottom line. It's not about yourself. You have to take yourself Abs- out of the equation. 100%. Absolutely. So you also yeah. just mentioned something about, you know, kind of the, and I have to say as a female, you know, being in the beverage industry now for, I think it's, I'm on like my 27th year, 28th year, whatever it is, or a million yeah. years, you know, put up with a lot of shit for so many years. Uh-huh. Cause you feel like you had to, as a female, to be one of the boys, you feel like you had to, I oh, felt yeah. like I had to, in so many situations, even working, let's say like at the Bellagio and there's over, I can't remember how many hundreds and hundreds of bartenders, six of us were women. And I was the youngest one, you know, my stories mm. go way back. But you did just mention something about what happened during COVID and especially during the civil unrest and the whole uprising of Mm -hmm. so many different demographics, so many different minority groups, including here in the beverage industry that are really trying to put our best foot forward to create change. So we don't have to kind of go back to the dark ages, right? Yeah. But even with that said, you know, um, and we don't have to mention the name of it, but, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we're at a conference. And mm-hmm. we look around and there's like no one of color on the stage and there's no one's even speaking about truly what happened during the early stages of the pandemic or not much about COVID at all. And there was a lot of bad behavior still. And so, you know, I think my question to you is because it, this goes beyond just working in the bar. This goes as just being a beverage professional, which can be being a salesperson. It can be 
you know, working for an account. It could be working for a brand, you know, all sorts mm-hmm. of different titles beyond that bartending title. So what mm-hmm. what changes would you like to see in the future? And how do you think we get there? Yeah, I mean, I'm <laughs> we we talked about this in depth. I I was really disappointed to um not even there wasn't even like a whisper of what are, you know, people doing to be more, you know, equitable and inclusive in, in their spaces. Um, and I, I actually think that the real movement is going to happen with like our bar community, like our USBG community. And it is happening. We've seen um, a lot of a lot of conversations within our community about, you know, doing everything from new tip models and, and reaching out beyond the normal boundaries to find staff. There was, and I do have to do a little shout out to, uh, to Robin Nance. You know, she put together this amazing, amazing video series called Refire for The Blend, which if anybody hasn't seen that, like go get on The Blend and go watch that entire series, especially, especially if you are a community leader or you own a bar. I think it's like a, it should be a must see for everybody, but they cover a lot of everything from, how to be more um, inclusive, diverse, and equitable in your communities, which is really, really enlightening. Um, I took a lot of those tips and in incorporating that into how we're going to be doing things here at the Garden Bar in Phoenix. But um, anyway, yeah, you know, I I do think that there is going to be a lot of, uh, and I hope to see a lot more change. And you know, as, as a woman, I you know have have definitely been and, and seen and been witness to and a part of a lot of. And some, and sometimes like the discrimination isn't so flagrant or out there, you know, it's like side comments or the expectation is a lot lower or the expectation that you may not know something that you're, that you do know, which can be frustrating, but I think it's, you know, I think it's getting a little bit better. There's the space now to have the conversation, which I, Mm -hmm. you know, my own experience, I never felt empowered to have that conversation before, right? It's almost Mm -hmm. like you're super lucky to be here. You're super lucky to be a part of this. Just like Mm. do your job, add value and that's it. Right. And then we had, you know, a massive social racial uprise, you know, for social Mm -hmm. and racial justice. And, you know, a lot of our you know, a lot of people and leaders in our industry came out and spoke up and said, we don't tolerate this zero tolerance, right? They didn't have to do Mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think that there was pressure to do it because everybody's looking, but Mm -hmm. they came out and said it and it's kind of like, okay, so what do we do now? I mean, I had the the great opportunity to present for the WSWA forum um, Mm -hmm. because I'm part of their talent diversity council. And, you know, I shared with them, I'm like, look, the trade is watching. Talent is watching. The customer is watching. We must do stuff. We must create action as leaders to make mm-hmm. it a more inclusive environment. You cannot hide behind four walls anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, people want to know, they want to know what is happening. And, you know, I think it was a missed opportunity at the conference we were at that they didn't talk about the business impact from the recent social justice uprise, because it's a massive impact to businesses. So whether you don't want to do it, you know, you're not doing it for the right reasons because you Mm -hmm. are an empathetic leader, but even just for plain business sakes, you know, I mean, it's, you know, Kaplan did the research for 2020 And over 60% of consumers only want to work with companies and brands that are doing something about social injustice. So the fact that the topic isn't even mentioned, like the fact that you can only talk about COVID um, in the past year is almost like it could be perceived as a microaggression. Like you purposely didn't want to talk about it because how could you not, you know, unless you were like under a rock this entire time. It was, it was such, such a major miss. And not only did they not talk about that, but they also didn't talk about some of just the amazing charitable initiatives that a lot of the accounts who were present participated in. You know, a lot of them did some amazing charitable initiatives for a lot of different types of of charities within hospitality and amongst their own staff. And that wasn't even discussed either. So I thought, and I hope that it wasn't, I hope that it was just an oversight and that maybe on on the next one, it will be, it will be discussed. But yeah, I thought it was a, it was, it was a major miss. 
And speaking of diversity, equity, and, and, and inclusion in DEI, you know, that's something that has been really important to me. And I've kind of been on my, my own journey with that over the past year. And I've joined like the National Diversity Council and have done some things here locally. But, you know, and I think attending these things, and I think a lot of leaders just want to know like where to start. It's kind of awkward to have this conversation. And, you know, some people have asked like, what is the USBG doing? And that's not an easy answer. It's not a quick fix and it shouldn't be. If you're looking for that quick fix, hey, let's put together, let's hire this one person to be our, you know, DEI person, spokesperson, or let's do this one thing so that we can show we're doing something. The way to do it is to continue to have these conversations with leadership, with your communities, and to, you know, toss around that Rubik's Cube in multiple ways. You know, one thing that, that we've done over the past four months, and it's taken this, it's taken this long, is, you know, with a, an association called the ASAE, which is kind of like the National Association of Associations. They've got, you know, bank associations or dental associations, real estate, and we're a part of this association. And we had this big, um, this big conference on incorporating DEI into your associations. And we went through this big, um, it's almost like an internal survey that you take that really touches on 15 different aspects of your association and just asks questions. And it forces you to really look deeply at, at your organization, how it's structured. It just forces you to really look at all of the um, different components and different points of view to really start to kind of unravel maybe some of the systemic things that need to change. And that doesn't happen overnight. So if you really are dedicated into really putting the work in there, it requires a lot of conversations and it requires a lot of deep, meaningful work that's going to take some time. It's not going to be a quick fix. And if you're dedicated to that process, if you are dedicated to that, I think that's where real change is going to happen. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that that is such personal work. And I think it does start at home. Yeah. You know, it's something that is ingrained within you. And, um, that you carry and you, you project out every single day. It's absolutely, it's not just a program that you take or a workshop that you take. Um, it's continually happening around you and in your life every single day. And I think as females, especially, um, it's so important that we just continue to do the work and help to uprise one another, you know, to raise up. Um, one another in this industry and to spotlight one another as often as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that, you know, you both kind of brought that up, right? I mean, you know, it's easy to say, well, it's not a, it's not a program, you know, DNI is not an initiative. It's got to be ingrained in your culture. It's got to be something Mm -hmm. that as an organization, it aligns with your values. And if it doesn't, you can't just mix up a bunch of people and, and hope that it's going to to resonate. And, you know, I, I, I just think back, you know, when there was this big, you know, the, the racial reckoning and, and, you know, me, I I've grown up in a very diverse environment my entire life. Mm-hmm. I've always had mixed friends. I just kind of gravitated towards people that were different because I was different too. And, and I just, mm-hmm. it was more interesting for me, but I had friends from everywhere. And, um, once everything went down with George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and, and so many others, I started kind of looking at myself like, mm-hmm. okay, who's, who do I involve in my circle, my sphere, right? Like who are my friends? And and I could say like, okay, mm-hmm. I've got, you know, I've got my, I mean, Miami is my Venezuelan friends. I've got my American friends. I've got all these different people. And then I kind of started thinking like, what's my feed look like on LinkedIn? Like, who am I following? Whose point of view mm. am I getting? Like, who am I? I know who I work with, right? And I know mm. my leadership is is very, um, you know, I've been kind of immersed with them for the last 10 years. Great people and have helped me so much in my career, but but still a very kind of, you know, homogenous mm. group. And so I've been learning mm-hmm. from them. And, and so I started looking through my LinkedIn, like, who am I following? And I just really started mixing it up. And like, mm. I need to follow more people of color. I need to follow more this perspective, this perspective, you know, and I started like 
definitely, you know, following all my social warriors that I found that were highlighted so much during this time. Right. And Mm -hmm. I exposed myself to like black social warrior leaders, Asian social, especially with like the Asian hate that like impacted me directly. Mm -hmm. And And now, like when I look at my feed, I'm so proud because I'm getting so many different perspectives. So even somebody Mm. that I don't want, you know, like when I, it's something I'm working on, my husband keeps coaching me on it, but it's like, I get so passionate about the topic that I don't want to come off like I'm being offensive. Like you should know how to be diverse. You should, of course, you know, you should be inclusive. Like it is a learning process. Even somebody for like myself that I was just like, oh, I'm diverse. I'm diverse. And I realized that in what I was consuming and my professional world and and it wasn't so diverse anymore. I was really leaning Mm. towards one side. So I think Bridget, you make up a really good point. It starts at home. It starts with you personally. Like look around, who are you connected with? How can you start getting other opinions and start learning from other people and hearing their stories? And then that is what creates that empathy. Mm. That's a really great idea is to and I think that's a great starting place, you know, and, and I, there, it, it could touch on so many th- different things from your, your, you know, political persuasion to your, uh, you know, just being aware of other perspectives and taking a look at your feed, scrolling through it in a way that is who, who are you following and who are you listening to and really making an effort to expand that, expand that repertoire of perspectives. I think that's a great, a great starting point. And I'm going to be doing probably the beginning of next year, I'm putting together like a little presentation on kind of my own personal journey that I'm going to share with our USBG leaders. Not to say that this should be what your journey is, but I'm just sharing you with what my journey is and how I've grown. But in order for us to to really incorporate this culturally, it does require you as leaders to buy into this, to do your own personal journey and to do your own personal work. You can't dial it in. You know, you you really got to lean in and do the work. Here's my story. I look forward to hearing your story someday, you know, but I think, um, I think, I think that's important. I think it's really important. Yeah. I mean, it sure is. And we have to keep the conversations going. We have to keep the conversations alive. And it's so crazy because, you know, two weeks ago, you know, I'm with my daughter at the women's March and you see so many women, um, 70 years old and and older, Mm. they're saying, I can't believe that I've been holding this sign for 60 something years. But, Mm. you know, even trying to not feel that frustration of change not coming soon enough, or it's changing very slowly, right? We've definitely Mm -hmm. seen some changes, whether you're a woman, whether you're Black, Hispanic, of the LGBTQIA community, there have been changes, Mm -hmm. just not enough of them. But if we Mm -hmm. continue to have the conversations, And to really to, like you said, lean in and dig deep, um, it will happen. We we have to always, we have to stay positive as well. And so I, you know, I do think coming out of COVID and we're really not even out of COVID yet, but coming on this other side of COVID, whatever that is, (laughs) you know, definitely seeing some positive changes already. And that's really where I'd like to ask you, Kim, is you know, just some of the positive things that you've seen happen in our industry. And one of them I know was with the USBG um, Charitable Foundation, something that you lead and you did such tremendous, beautiful work for so many good people. Can you share mm-hmm. um, with the listeners about what that looked like for you and for those that um, volunteered? Yeah, I got to say that has just been one of the most amazing things that I was I was a part of. So, you know, we started the foundation with you, Bridget, you know, uh, back in like, when to say 2014, something like that around there. And it was really meant as um, we knew and still know that bartender, a lot of bartenders don't have a safety net or insurance. So when a tragedy strikes, you know, like it could be, you know, a weather tragedy, you know, a flood or fire, or they get into a car accident or something happens and they don't have that kind of safety net that they're kind of screwed. So we started this bartender emergency assistance program as a grant program to kind of help uh, get through those rough times. So that, that's been successful. And we were used to getting, you know, maybe a dozen grants a quarter. That's what it would kind of had built up to that. So in the beginning of 
you know, in, in like 2019, you know, it was again about, about a dozen grants a quarter. And then when COVID hit, you know, we had a couple of, of brands that came on board and our application went viral. And we went from, you know, doing, getting a dozen grants a quarter to like 45,000 grants in a matter of just a few weeks. And then that number like doubled and tripled in, in like the, the many weeks to follow. And that really caused us to really have to scale up our, uh, our operations, our technology. Um, we got more brands on board. And I got to say, you know, one thing that's amazing about the hospitality industry is when someone is hurt, people step up. You know, a lot of, you know, one thing that was amazing to see was, you know, during we had this COVID-19 relief campaign and we're vetting applications, we had over 500 volunteers at one point that were trained in helping to, to vet applications, which was just phenomenal. And we had even bartenders that had applied for a grant, but then by the time they received their money, they're like, you know what? I'm good. I'm back working. I don't need that money. I want to give that money back so it can go to someone else who needs it, which is just amazing to see. Um, and we also had a lot of brand partners that really stepped up current and new people that stepped up. And at the end of the day, we ended up raising $10 million that went straight to people in need. And this, you know, went to not just bartenders, but other front of house workers too, um, that, that needed the money. Um, and it was great. You know, we, we helped a lot of people. And one thing that we've continued to do even today is that we have, we do our IG weeklies um, and we have myself, we also have um, Naomi Ayala. She's a leader in our Dallas community. And we just have useful information, not, you know, we used to just have them as updates to our COVID-19 relief campaign, but that evolved into creating, you know, a space for a lot more voices and a lot more, you know, we're this week, we're going to be talking about boundaries, you know, setting boundaries in your workspace. But we're talking, we talk everything about from diversity, equity, and inclusion to taxes, to, you know, how to save, to fundraising in your own community. So we cover a lot of really useful topics, but, you know, so that momentum continues to, to stay strong. And so I think it's raised a lot of awareness for our charity for sure. But, you know, I think we've also empowered a lot of our community leaders to, to, to get more engaged and involved. Yeah, it was it was such a time where, you know, the USBG and and having that, you know, the structure of the foundation and the brands and and even distributors and just kind of everybody in the industry really stood up and and contributed and it was just it was so great to see. You know, and and it was hard, right? It was tough because yeah. We should have, you know, the people in the industry should have received that support from the government. And, and we really, they, they really didn't. And being that mm -hmm. the restaurant industry is like the second largest employer in the country, yeah. that there's no, you know, it really takes people like the leaders at the USBG to really pull everybody together and, and support them. And I, I remember, I mean, working with Bridget and we would volunteer to vet these applications. And a majority mm. of them were not bartenders. They were servers that worked at, you know, Cheesecake mm -hmm. Factory and single yeah. moms and and um young guys that didn't want to like go back and and trouble their parents. They just wanted to like be able yeah. to take care. I mean, reading these stories were like heart-wrenching. And it was, it just puts things into perspective. And so many of them have loved being in the industry. Obviously, they've had their jobs for like 10, 15 years. I mean, I read a, a wow. girl, you know, that a woman that had her job for like over 25 years as a server and she loves it, you know? So mm. the fact that you guys really branched out and helped everybody in the industry was just so wonderful to see. And, you know, how do you feel when we talk about that great resignation, how has that really impacted some of your members and the bartenders? Have you seen a lot this big, great resignation where they're, everybody's off doing different things and found different sources of revenue yeah. and, and whatnot? You know, I have, um, you know, I, for, for a while there, I was really frustrated because I was reading a lot of articles and finally I was so mad. I read this local article here in, here in Phoenix where the journalist took the tact of, well, you know, blaming, you know, the, the government you know, extended unemployment checks for why people aren't going back. And I'm just like, oh my God. And there was just 
quote from this one owner, and I kid you not, this owner said, I can't wait till the government stops unemployment and these employers come begging me for a job back and I'm going to laugh in their face. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Well, good luck. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm just so frustrating. And I ended up, you know what, I'm going to do my own. And out of the stories that I've, I've read and you read on those applications, we know that that's just not true. And we, um, I reached out to a lot of bartenders here locally and, and, have, and have talked to so many bartenders around the country and really wanted to hear their stories. And it really goes to, you know, a lot of them, you know, said, you know, I kind of thought this could be a career, but this actually gave me the chance that I needed to go back to school. I talked to a lot of bartenders, you know, and, and to, you know, I know one bartender who started his own tech company here locally. I, I know I, during the pandemic, I think it was it was one of the Ivy League universities downloaded their entire like um, computer language programs for free, and so he took advantage of that and learned it and started his own like little mini tech company. Um, and I talked to another bartender who went into mortgage banking. She tried to go back and said, "You know what? It just wasn't with the political nature of being on the front lines and people, especially here in Arizona, that didn't want to wear a mask and." was really frustrated at some of the rules and they were on the front lines of having to deal with that and, and not being treated right. Said, you know what, it's too much. I'm not going to do it. I had talked to another bartender that was having a hard time with remote learning with their, their kids going back to school and childcare. So they had to find something else that they could work from home. So it was, it was just uh, so many different things. It's not just one thing. But on the other hand, I have talked to some restaurant and bar owners who have had like a little dip in sales, but now like they have always taken care of their employees and they have their full team back, you know, which is also really great to see. So it's just really interesting to see people's and restaurant and bar owners response to the pandemic, how they're, how they're coming back, how they're successful. And I think that might be the next phase of storytelling and hearing how these bars and restaurants are holding it together and how they are holding on to employees, new labor models, new tip models. You know, I'm seeing a lot of discussions and success around too. So I think, you know, more and more stories and conversations around that are going to continue to push the needle forward and bringing hospitality to, to a new level. Agree. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think there's just so much talent in our industry and, and mm-hmm. people have stayed not because of the notoriety, because you tell people you're a bartender or you sell mm-hmm. liquor that you're going to get all this respect. It's, it doesn't matter. It's because we love it and we have a passion for it. And it's so rewarding. And I think people have that, but when you have the you know, and the pandemic hits and you're out of your job for whatever reason, whether you're in a great working environment or you weren't, you know, you have that time to really assess and, and your survivor Mm -hmm. skills come into action, right? You're like, what am I going to do to survive? And talent knows how to survive. It's just second nature. You know how to make the best out of any situation. And somebody described it perfectly. They were like, during COVID, that was like an 18 month, like deep therapy, you know, like it was like a being in meditation for 18 months, really just having the chance to like, look at your life. How do you spend your time? Is it good for you? How are you being, you know, and, and what's the future look like? And people made some big decisions and I so happy to see so many people thrive um, because many have. And, and like you said, with the restaurant, so, you know, just throwing out some geeky data, I, because I lead on premise, you know, for a big distributor, I've, we've been watching, we, we like run what we call like a threshold report, like how many accounts opened this month versus last year, Mm. this month. And we have to monitor that because there was a point when nobody was ordering, you know, it's like no accounts ordered. And so we've been watching it, but what, what we've noticed is that There's less accounts open, obviously, because we've had a good amount close, Mm -hmm. but the average sales per account is increasing, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, like you said, the cream will rise to the top, right? So it's almost Mm -hmm. like the ones that have survived are now like, and I see it, you know, I'm in Miami and I go out and I've been traveling and we go out. It's, 
you can't even get a reservation. And, and I know that there's a labor shortage, but even besides that, like these places are packed, they're full every day of the week. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful thing to see. And I, I think, I, yeah, I think you're spot on, like kind of getting some of those stories, right. Of like, mm-hmm. how were yeah. you able to really thrive from the pandemic? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And not just thrive, yeah. but you know, if you look at the consumer I think more than ever that they are being just very careful on where they're putting their dollars. Um, mm. I think quality right now trumps quantity mm-hmm. because we mm-hmm. were so cooped up and and some of us are still cooped up, you know, with this whole mm-hmm. second wave of COVID flying through. So mm. I just think the consumer, when they go out, you know, they're very picky on where they want to spend because maybe year or two ago, you know, they were used to going mm-hmm. out to dinner, you know, even three, four times a week. Yeah. Well, now it might be just twice a month. Right. Right. So yeah. There's yeah. something to that. Now, you know, with that said, Kim, because as much as I love how much that you do with the USBG and all these amazing mm-hmm. things, but at the end of the day, you make some damn good drinks, girl. So we should talk about that too, right? So, you know, what are you seeing? What are some fun things that you're seeing um, behind, you know, at the bars? And um, what do you think about the whole cocktail to go? Yeah, I totally think it's going to be here to stay. You know, one thing that we're going to be doing, um, and actually in much in part as a response to the pandemic is in the South Roosevelt district in downtown Phoenix, there really isn't like a whole, there's not like a grocery store around and there's not really any place, at least that I know of in Phoenix, where you could go buy like some good bar tools or some large format ice or some, you know, we want to kind of have like a little bodega. So during the day you could order some of our cocktails or punches to go that are like large format, as well as like bar tools and large format ice. So you could, you know, do some at-home entertaining, you know, if you want to. So I'm seeing a lot of, yeah, definitely a lot more to-go and a lot more, you know, as opposed to what, you know, to-go started off early in the pandemic with like the styrofoam cups and the lid and, and the you know, the tape over it. We're seeing a lot more kind of thought go into, you know, labeling and, um, and more, more packaging, you know, packaging is a whole other thing with our, with a glass bottle shortage, but I think that will write itself. Um, but yeah, you know, so we're doing a lot of, um, to go cocktails and we're also, we doing a lot, we're working with a lot of local artisans and local purveyors, um, to really try to, you know, one thing that was important to me, even pre pandemic was sustainability So, you know, we're going to have gardening in the back and even part of the role of like being an employee is that you have to also log garden time (laughs) into. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, yeah, everybody kind of is and a lot of cross training too and to be able to give people a lot of opportunities and flexibility. So, you know, not trying to pigeonhole people into specific roles, you know, even down to the person who's going to be our utility person making sure that they feel empowered and that, you know, offering cross training to do other things too. So I think we're going to see a lot of that kind of thing happen too within hospitality, which is already kind of happening. So much. And, you know, I think you're, I think you're spot on with the cocktails to go. I think just being able, and I think what we learned through the pandemic is that, you know, you could take that experience to go. You know, like it yeah. can be a wonderful experience that a bartender curated, you know, with all these cool condiments and like kits mm-hmm. were just out of control. And, and, you know, and it gave time for some of our biggest brands to, you know, I mean, we work with Beams and Tori and they really, we mm-hmm. really, that was one of our first initiatives between Rachel mm-hmm. and I and, and Bridget, we were like, we need to do cocktails to go. And we started a work stream right away started a playbook. And yeah, in the beginning, it was like restaurants using their old, you know, soup containers and whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we were, we, you know, we had to find obviously we're illegal and whatever, but it's like, how do we support with, you know, whatever um, works for that state and, and providing cool glassware or, Mm. you know, different types of containers and, and add some cool stuff, you know, some, Mm -hmm. some branded packaging. And and it just makes it an amazing experience that you could replicate for the most part, what, what your bartender would do for you and then have the delicious food to go with it. I mean, 
I was hoping that it would get to the point where like a restaurant would send you like a tablecloth and like mm, yeah. the food <laughs> and the cocktail so you could like relive the whole experience. But I, we didn't get there yet. I mean, there could yeah. still be maybe for like private events and stuff, but mm. I think the industry found this revenue stream and it's so wonderful that many states are are keeping this in place. You know, I mean, it was it was safe. It, there weren't any major issues. Um, it could mm-hmm. be managed and controlled by the state um, with their laws. And it, and it really was a lifeline um, for the customers. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I, I hope I hope I see, you know, a lot of states have put deadlines on it, but a lot of them have just taken it out, you know, like have it open for three years. I, I hope it becomes more permanent in more states. Yeah, it should. I mean, if you can order alcohol from Drizzly, why can't you get an alcohol it, or right. get a cocktail from your restaurant? I mean, it just, it makes, it makes no sense. So, you know, it's not that hard to pop open a bottle, you know, it's yeah. right, about the same, <laughs> same energy as like popping in a straw into a container. So, you know, another thing I wanted to ask you, because I was looking at your bio is tell me a little bit more about this Aspen Classic. Yeah, you know, we um, we just kind of celebrated our 10 year anniversary for that. And it was more of like this, the celebration of apres ski. If you are a ski bum and you've ever done like snowboarding, you know how much like after you get off Yes, I am a ski bum. And that is like my dream job. I'm waiting for the day that that's all I can do all day long. (laughs) I love it. And so we've been going to to Aspen for a long time. My my husband used to be used to work in the entertainment industry. That's actually how we met. And there was a HBO comedy festival. And he was kind of directed the film components. We've been going there for a long time. Like we would go twice a year to do that festival. And then we would go back to food and wine, which sometimes I was involved with that too. Um, and we really loved it. And after a while, I thought, you know, why don't we do like we, there's this amazing, you know, food and wine experience. What if we just did a cocktail, something that really celebrated the experience of apres ski and so with myself and my husband, and we had a couple of other uh, partners in it too. Yeah, put together this event in Aspen that happens every year. That's really just a celebration of apres ski. So we have every brand imaginable, you know, everything from hot toddy stations to we had like a grand tasting village, which is kind of like walking through your own like little um, village of like different apres ski cocktails and even had like a cocktail Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. And we even had like activations on the mountain that you had to ski to. to Oh my God. So like these cabins and like you were, you were given a map and like go to this cabin. So you'd have to take the lift up and like ski down to it. So experiential and amazing. But you know, last year, Literally the day that we were to open was when Aspen shut down. <laughs> so, uh, so we've they weren't. It, it was so funny because we were all watching. I'm like, they are not going to shut down. Like, let's start looking at tickets. I will quarantine on the mountain, you know. <laughs> and then I think by the next week they're like they're shutting it down because I guess I wasn't the only one that thought of that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but when you're, we worked, you know, really close with the city and they were telling us like, we were like, do we need to be thinking about this? And they were all, everybody from the city was like, no, 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 go, go, go until the day of. So we didn't oh. even really have like time to like, well, should we start making arrangements or plans, you know? But anyway, anyway, uh, we are bringing it back. So excited about that, you know, to get going. And, and this past, um, you know, it was funny because when we, we, I was implementing a new health and wellness piece to Apri Ski. So I had about seven bartenders that flew out and we were doing a whole health and wellness initiative, like on the mountain and doing like snowshoe hikes and things like that. So they, we were all stuck here, but we were like, you know what? We're doing it anyway. We're going on hikes. We're, oh, even though that. we're not going to have an event, we're still going to do this health and wellness initiative, which was awesome. Not um, a bad place to be stuck, Yes, by the way. Right. <laughs> Right. Look, exactly. Kim, I love that event so much. And if you need me for anything, I'm putting my name in that hat right now today. So oh, yes. We will, I, we will be there. Girlfriend. I will I will wash glasses. Yes. I'll whatever you need. I'll be the host. We will do whatever. When when is it? March 31st to April 3rd. Oh, perfect. Spring skiing. 
yeah, put it on your calendar. I'll, we'll be posting some more information about it, but yeah, you know, we're looking for, you know, people to get involved and, um, yeah, come out and, and enjoy skiing and some apres ski cocktails. So it's super duper fun. That is amazing. Yeah, we will definitely be down for that. I'm putting it in my calendar right now. Kim, before we close out, could you give our listeners, especially those who maybe are considering entering the beverage community, you know, really thinking about that career in beverage, some sound advice? Yeah, um, I think now is more than ever such a great opportunity to be a part of the hospitality industry. You know, everybody is looking and it is really, you can actually get in the door without a whole lot of experience. It's a, t- it's a time for people to shine that really want to learn and engage versus trying to be a celebrity. You know, if you're looking to learn and be a part of a community, I, I think the time hasn't been more ripe to get good people. So I think if you're looking, getting in the, there's, and there, and there are so many different directions to take your, to take this career, whether it's working in a restaurant or bar and maybe eventually going into management or ownership, there's that track, there's track in working with an actual supplier or liquor brand or beverage and going up that track, working with distributors in sales and that track, um, working with an actual like distiller, that track. I mean, there's so many different opportunities and tracks to take within beverage hospitality. And I think as, as much as we've been through over the past year, it's a great time to be a part of this industry. And there are so many people that are part of it that want to make other people succeed. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a great time to be a part of beverage hospitality. Um, and there's a lot of really great resources available now than there ever was before. I mean, Bridget, you know, you and I came from a time when you just kind of learned from like the bartender that was behind the bar to show you the ropes. Now there are communities like the USBG, um, like Lush Life, like so many great books out there, so many great online resources that we never really, you and I didn't have access to. So I think there, you know, and, and being a part of in many online communities too, I think is great. I think just being aware of the opportunity and that you have a lot of different directions and a lot of different options at your fingertips that you can take. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I, I came from a different side of the business, mainly wine, but, you know, I had to learn a lot of stuff myself, you know, like Googling mm-hmm. translations, you know, from Italian to American, understanding all this stuff. And it it was great, but now the resources are endless. And you mentioned, you know, Robin Nance and the blend and what they've done. I mean, what mm-hmm. an incredible resource, right? I mean, so you've got the refire videos that really talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the culture and current events and, and really hot topics, but then, you know, they've got full on cat, you know, education on, um, yeah. category and, and just learning about, you know, the distilling process and, it's it's a wealth of information. And I just I do want to put in a, a shameless plug, but they Robin Nance and Jesse McGuire were our past guests and they do talk mm. about the blend. So any of our listeners, as we finish, as you finish listening to this episode, you could fast forward to the January 18th and listen to Robin Nance and Jesse McGuire talk all about the blend. Um, mm. and I encourage, you know, I mean, to your exact words of wisdom, that the opportunities in this industry are endless. So if you're tired of being a distributor, go be a supplier, go work in, you know, yeah. go, go, you know, front of the house. If you're, you know, a bartender, you don't want to do them or go be a supplier, go be a distributor. Like there's so much, and we're all here to help each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I do feel that there's that connection. So yeah. And we need good people. Like yes. we need you, you know, if you're listening yeah. to this and have considered it. Yeah. We, we need good people in this industry. I think there, there's so much, so much to do. Hundred percent. We need, you know, we need to keep the talent that we have, and we need to continue to grow that talent, and we need to like mm-hmm. this next generation of leaders, and and continue doing all that good work. So, mm-hmm. you know, Kim, it's been so great um, to spend time with you a couple of weeks ago in California and get to know you and and just talk with you today and um, hearing all the wonderful things that that you are doing and 
continuing to lead the way in, in this industry. We can't wait to come see you in Arizona. So you're gonna have to let us know when that is. Absolutely. Yes. Hopefully Thanksgiving, but we'll, we'll do a bigger like industry night. Oh, wow. Already Thanksgiving. Yeah. What a wonderful time to, <laughs> to open these doors. So, oh my God, if we could go, I don't know, Bridget, can we do that before the end of the year? I would love to go to Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I want to go anywhere out of Shorewood right now, but especially to see Kimmy. Yes, I'm in. Well, thank awesome. you, Kim, for sharing your story and, and just everything that you're doing with us. Yeah, great. Kim, thank yeah. you for being such a bold as Julie. You know, that's definitely Julie's word, but thank you for being just a bold leader in our industry, a mentor to so many and just a good friend. You know, I appreciate your hard work and I appreciate your friendship and the time that you spent with us today. And on behalf of Julie, myself and the Served Up mm. crew, you know, we would just want to wish you a lot of great um, health and a ton of peace, sister. Thank you so oh, much for being on the show. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! <laughs>